Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day, moms and grandmas and all the ladies in attendance. You look marvelous. Great to be together this morning on Mother's Day. How great are our moms? Can we give them a round of applause, please? Can we? As one who has moved into a place where my mom is where I used to live, I I can personally say how grateful I am for the ladies in this church and so many who have been so nurturing to our family during our uh, move here and our new role in this place, and very, very grateful for the women in this church. You know, sometimes on Mother's Day, I like to give a message that is specifically oriented to moms and Other times on Mother's Day, I like to just continue on in the series that we're doing. Uh, We're in a series right now titled, One is Greater Than Seven, on the Seven Deadly Sins, and I thought it would be best for me not to preach a message out of the Seven Deadly Sins on Mother's Day. (laughs) I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I know that. What I would like to do today is give a message that's oriented around families and really is for All people here today, I I pray there's something that everyone can get out of this message because I think it applies to us all, be it mothers or grandmothers or fathers or or really anyone. And uh, I pray that this morning's message would give moms a break from guilt. Moms, can I get an amen? (laughs) I mean, moms harbor so much guilt these days. Dads do too. I want to give you a message today that gives you a break from guilt. It's a different message than I typically give on Mother's Day and perhaps different than you frequently have received on Mother's Day. I recognize, let me just say this as a caveat, that I recognize what Sarah just prayed. Mother's Day is a blessed day for many, but it's simultaneously a very painful day for many. And I want you to know, moms and grandmas, that whenever you come in here on Mother's Day, uh, you can know that if I'm preaching, I'll be sensitive to where you are. I, I promise you that. There are many that on any given Mother's Day are dealing with grave disappointment and grave loss uh, of things that didn't turn out the way they hoped they would, and we'll always be sensitive to that on Mother's Day. Those feelings are very real. But again, today's message is, is really for everyone. It's a message for moms, and it's a message for grandmas, and it's a message for those who hope to one day be a mom. It's a message for those who have a mom. It's a message for those who know someone who is a mom. Who's this message for? It's for everyone, okay? It's for all of us, though, this morning, not specifically for mothers. A little bit about me. I have one fantastic wife who is the mother of our two boys, Elijah and Silas. Her name is Susie, and she is warm and gentle, and she's uh, one of the kindest people I know. And she's spiritually deep, and she's creative, and she is such a blessing to me and to our two boys. We have two, two sons, Elijah and Silas, age eight and four, and, and one of our boys, Elijah, is um, warm and creative, and he is very kind, and he's gentle, he's tender-hearted, he's more like his mother. He is very awesome. And then the other one, Silas, is, uh, he's cuddly. And he is giggly, and he can be quite loud, more like his dad, and still awesome in spite of that. There's something beautiful. In fact, there are few things more beautiful than family. 
right? It's very easy for family to become the number one thing in our lives because there's almost nothing that is more profound than sitting on your back porch and having a wonderful evening dinner together as you sip iced tea and play ball with the kids in the yard as the sun goes down. It's almost heaven on earth. And so it's really easy to turn family into the number one thing in our lives. Frankly, sometimes family needs to be the number one thing in our lives. We've all kind of established this pecking order of things, and the church is particularly good at helping people establish a pecking order of things in which you have this this value structure that the most important thing is God, the most important thing is relationship with Christ, and then after that comes family, and then after that comes work and church and uh, my friendships, and maybe way down here are my interests and my hobbies. And it's this very nice linear chart. How's that going for you? You got a nice linear life? No. Like me, you have uh, basketball practice, and football practice, and piano practice, and dance classes for the kids, and and you have uh, school activities and extra responsibilities at work and extra responsibilities at church and so many different things that we develop this tangled mess and our lives are anything but linear. And in the midst of that, sometimes the very best decision that we can make is to place family first. It needs at times to be first in our lives such that you're wise at times to say no to additional responsibilities at work or additional opportunities at church. Am I allowed to say that at church? Yes, at times, that's just spot on, that we say no to other priorities in order to say yes to the priority of family. And we should at times. For this is something that I have found we all have in common. No matter what your faith persuasion is today, whether you're a committed follower of Christ or someone has Uh, invited you here today, or maybe you've just come kind of kicking and screaming today, or uh, you believe something else entirely, or no matter what your political persuasion, I have never, ever met someone who wants to have a mediocre family. No matter who you are, we all desire that. It's It's a longing that has been placed in our hearts by God. And some of us look back and we say, I do have a mediocre family, and that's difficult, but none of us long for that, and so it's right at times for us to prioritize family as the very first thing in our lives. It's a great priority, so much so that it can become, if we're not careful, our source of identity, and it become our source of pride. When family's going well, it can become our source of pride. And when a family's not going quite as well, it can become our source of shame. There is, I've noted in your outline, a certain power and pride to the perfect family image. There's this allure, this pride, this power to the perfect family image, whatever that might be for you, that we put it up, this portrait in our mind, this is what it must be, and if it doesn't turn out this way, then somehow that reflects negatively on me. That perfect family image comes from many places, but it's probably uh, artistically represented best by the Norman Rockwell paintings. Here's one. 
in which you have 2.5 to 3.5 dutiful kids looking with respect at dad and a loving mother who's caring for the kids and caring for the family and serving them and grandma and grandpa around that table and all the kids are waiting patiently for their meal. Yes, please, can I have seconds of that? Right? There's a longing that we have for that image, a longing that we have for that to be true in our own lives. And yet we bump up against reality enough times and we recognize that probably that's not going to happen, at least exactly like that for us. And so we, uh, we begin to settle for something a little bit less than that. And we say, well, if I can't have that Norman Rockwell picture, then at least I'll have this bubble wrap around my kids, something like that. You ever seen that picture? That's from Time Magazine a number of years ago. And it was a feature article in Time Magazine on helicopter parents. Moms, anyone? We cannot bubble wrap our kids. We cannot prevent all harm from coming to them. There is danger this side of eternity. And yet there is this power and pride to a perfect family image and to the false allure that we can always keep our kids from physical or spiritual harm. We, of course, cannot. A few weeks ago, uh, my family had our very first dentist appointment here in Kearney. We moved into town about uh, eight months ago, and so my wife got us a dentist appointment with uh, Dr. Kim Bush and Dr. Mark Bush, and uh, we were waiting in the waiting room for our boys to come out, and they, they got out of their appointment, and they were uh, ex as, as all excited as, as you could possibly imagine because they got new Avengers toothbrushes and stickers to go with them, and they didn't come out bleeding. It was a very, very happy visit. And uh, Dr. Kim Bush came out, and Susie and I were just catching up for a few moments, and she sat down with us, and she said, uh, Adrian and Susie, first, before we talk about your kids' teeth, can I just tell you, your kids are so well-mannered. They are so well-behaved. And I just kind of humbly said, well, thank you, Dr. Bush, as my chest expanded to the ceiling. And I couldn't hear anything else that she said about my kids' teeth. And I, I wanted to say, Dr. Bush, could you please say that a little bit louder so everyone in this building can hear how well-mannered my kids are? There's just this pride, this power, this allure to having you think well of my kids because of how it reflects on me and the glory that I receive from it. So dangerous. When we do well, they boost our identity, and when they perform poorly, and I could certainly share many of those stories this morning as well, but we'll save those for another day. When they perform poorly, our identity can easily take a hit. I tell you, if there was an eighth deadly sin, again, we're in this series on the seven deadly sins, if there was an eighth deadly sin, it would probably be competitive parenting. You know, there's this desire for one-upsmanship. Let me show you all of my kids' accomplishments, how great my kids are. Let me show you how well-behaved my kids are. And we gain a sense of value, a sense of our glory from our kids' achievements. And if we're not careful, they can very easily become little gods. Once again, there is a pride when our families reflect well on us, and then there's this feeling of insecurity when they don't. 
This morning, I really wanted to give you a message on the perfect family from the Bible, but I went through the pages from Genesis to Revelation, and I couldn't find it. It's not in here. The perfect family is not found in these pages. Throughout the pages of Scripture, the expectation is that God does wonders through imperfect parents. God raises imperfect kids for His glory through imperfect parents. The, the danger of that portrait that we've been talking about is this false idea that somehow we can control our kids' outcomes when we cannot. You, you look at the literature of the day, parenting literature today, much of it buys into this idea. One writer warns, if our parents' approach, listen to this, if our parents' approach seemed close to biblical parenting yet bore bad fruit, we can be certain it was not biblical. Well, how does that make you feel? Or how about this? He goes on. If we correctly apply the right principles, parents will not be disappointed, which only makes parents feel guilty and suggests that our kids are like Pavlovian dogs or something. They're not. They got a will of their own. And the effects of culture are vast. And the truth is, God still uses imperfect parents for His glory to raise imperfect kids who can be used by Him to expand His kingdom. Let, let me give you a really good bu book title that will never sell any copies. God Raises Imperfect Kids. God uses imperfect parents to raise imperfect kids. That book title will not sell, but that's true. No perfection is expected in the pages of Scripture when it comes to family. Indeed, as you look at the household codes in the New Testament, there are many household codes for how we're to operate as a family in the New Testament, you see that they just assume there will be imperfection. Sarah just read this passage out of Colossians 3, 12 to 17. I'd like to highlight a few of these verses and just draw out a couple simple ideas from this as it relates to our biological family, our nuclear family, or our church family. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Isn't that beautiful? These pages here, these verses, and much like them over in Ephesians, they assume imperfection. The people will be messy, and therefore families will have their times of messiness. And when you do what Paul is encouraging, in those moments you put on the clothing of kindness and humility and patience and gentleness. These are all very active verbs that are spoken, on, spoken of here. These are action words that we must do. You put on 
forgiveness for one another. You choose to bear with each other. You put on love when it's not easy. You put on patience, which assumes there will be things in your family, as is true in my family, which require patience. How about this? Actively put on forgiveness. Or actively put on this quality of bearing with each other. I think what Paul is talking about there is there will be qualities in any families, in any family that are like idiosyncrasies, things that are, are pet peeves, things that you just kind of have to put up with. They're not quite sins, but you have to put up with these in each other. So he says, bear with one another in love. And then choose to actively quickly forgive one another. Don't harbor guilt. Do not harbor grudges or resentment or bitterness. Deal with it quickly and choose to actively forgive one another just as in the same way Christ so quickly forgave you of all of your failures. Uh, Friends, could you imagine if we did this? If we just practiced these four verses in our life groups Imagine if we just practiced these four verses. We proactively put on these verbs in our families. We proactively did these four verses throughout our church. The difference that it would make for bringing healing to families is profound. Now the point of all this, once again, is this beautiful reality that we should expect imperfection, and God loves us anyway. He expects the mess, and he works with us through the mess, which helps us so much as mothers or as fathers, because there is a certain futility, is there not? There's a certain futility in trying to maintain the perfect family image. Some of you have tried to do this tried to maintain the perfect family image. And it doesn't work. It never works. We obviously do all that we can to keep our kids safe. We do everything we can to love our kids well, to train our kids, to discipline them well, to do what these families up front did this morning, to uh, dedicate themselves as they're training their kids. Yes, they're dedicating their children, but they're really also dedicating themselves. But perfection is grasping at the wind. It's never going to happen. And there are no Bible promises that our kids will turn out to be all that we want them to be. If you write nothing else down this morning, hear this. There are no Bible promises that say our kids will turn out to be everything we want them to be. There's one oft-quoted proverb, and I want to speak to that for a moment, because it's frequently misinterpreted. And it goes like this, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, a little bit of biblical interpretation training here. There's different genres in the Bible, and you must read the Bible within its given genres to understand its accurate meaning. And there are some commands in the Bible, and there's some promises in the Bible. There's some historical records and chronological um, teachings in the Bible, chronologies in the Bible. And this is what you call a proverb. And a proverb is something that is generally true, but not always true. It has exceptions. And that's the nature of the entire book of Proverbs. They're generally true, but they have exceptions. And this is one of those teachings that is generally true. If you raise a child in the way he should go, when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
but we all know we have all seen exceptions to that rule, have we not? We've all seen those exceptions. Here's another proverb, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. Proverbs 10.4 says, Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Well, do diligent hands always bring wealth? No. We've seen that. Do lazy hands always result in poverty? No. Usually they do, but not always. These are generalities. And so, too, when we train up a child in the way they should go to help them learn the way of the Lord, to teach them proper admonition in the Lord, generally speaking, when they're old, they will follow that. But this is not an ironclad promise. Think about it. King Solomon wrote this, and presumably his father, King David, trained him up in the way he should go. And King Solomon started out well, but when he was old, he departed from it. That's true of King Solomon. Or think about this. If you read that proverb as a promise that you can do certain things to your kids, certain things for your kids, and you will get definitive things from your kids, then who ultimately is responsible for your kids' Christian salvation in the end? Tell me that. It would be you. It would be parents that are ultimately responsible for their kids' salvation, their kids following Christ, and we know that is not the case because the consistent biblical teaching, the consistent teaching throughout the New Testament goes like this, for it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of yourself, not of your parents' doing, not of any other person's doing. It is by grace through faith, not of your own doing, such that no person and no parent could ever boast. And my friends, this is liberating for us when we hold on to this reality that we do all that we possibly can, but there is much that we cannot do. The influence of friends will be significant. The influence of parents will be most significant. The influence of culture will be significant. And our kids have a great will of their own, do they not? And amidst all of that, God gives his grace and they must respond by faith. And what that means is if my little Elijah and my little Silas become warriors, men of God who treat women well and honor Christ well with their whole lives, then I do not get all the credit and Susie does not get all the credit. And if my kids struggle, we don't get all the blame because salvation is by grace through faith. So we do all that we possibly can to train our kids up in the way that they should go, but then we leave room for their will and for the fact of friendship and their own genetics and on and on we could go. We are wise to operate with grace in this realm. We're wise to teach ourselves accurate theology. Parents have great influence, but kids will have to respond to the grace of God, and God gets all of the credit when someone comes to him. Can I get an amen? That is actually liberating when we hold on to that. Now up on the screen, you'll see a passage from Mark chapter 10, and uh, it needs to be stated that Jesus consistently affirms family, 
Paul consistently affirms family. Peter consistently affirms family. But they also consistently teach that there's something even higher than family, such that we are not allowed to something uh, as beautiful as family, as golden as family, to become the number one thing in our lives, that there's something even above our families. And Peter is here kind of complaining about how much he and the disciples have lost in pursuing Christ. And it goes like this. See, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive 100 times as much homes and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and sons and daughters, along with it persecution, both in the present age and in the age to come, 100 times as much. Now what's Jesus getting at here? He's getting at this very difficult reality that there may be times that we have to choose Christ over any, over any other relationship. That there might be times that someone wants us to do something, even a family member might want us to do something that's contrary to what Christ wants, or to believe something that is contrary to what Christ would have us believe. And when those two rub, you choose Christ. And to be sure, that will be painful. And I do not tell you that theoretically. I tell you that practically. I have experienced that time and time again, the pain of having to choose Christ over family, and it's hard. But I pray that you would have faith, if you're in that spot today, I pray that you would have faith to believe that Jesus Christ himself will in fact give you 100 times as much, I think, in spiritual family as you say Christ first in everything. All of me, for all of God's glory, I will choose Christ even when it comes at an, at an expense to others. And I pray that wouldn't happen to any person in this room. But what Jesus invites us to is to have only one sovereign in our lives. And if we have only one sovereign in our lives, that will be healthiest for us and healthiest for everyone around us. Christ first in everything. Again, the wonderful thing about this teaching is that it actually prevents us from expecting too much from one another. Contrary to Hollywood teaching, men are not expected to complete women. And wives are not expected to complete husbands. Christ is expected to complete us. Contrary to Hollywood teaching, uh, kids won't necessarily fulfill it's not kids' job to fulfill us. That's too much of a burden on our kids if we expect them to constantly fulfill us. I have a friend who years ago told me that his relationship with his mother had been strained because she's constantly disappointed by his career path. He hasn't fulfilled what she expected of him in terms of career trajectory, and so whenever job or vocation comes up in their conversation, she gets a little bit nervous and a little bit embarrassed. That's, that's too much pressure for us to handle. We're not made to fulfill our parents' deepest longings. What we need from our parents instead is what I've seen so many women in this room do for each other, do for other young women and other young men in this room, do for their own kids, and that is we seek to 
go for it all. We seek to achieve, but we fail. And when we fail, we know we can fall on our mothers. Amen? When we fail, we know that we can fall on our grandmothers. I think of my own mother and how many times that I sought something great and I failed, but then I fell into her loving arms. The power of that, to know that you have some safe place to fall when you fail. All of us are imperfect, and so as a result, every family is imperfect. But we rest in a perfect Savior for imperfect families. Hold on to this today, moms. You rest in a perfect Savior for imperfect families. I'm so grateful for the women here, again. And uh, as I've noted already, God has given you a gift. God has blessed you with mercy and with courage and with strength and with nurture. And we cannot thrive as a church without the women who are leading in this church in such remarkable ways. And we all say together with Psalm 139 that he did a great job in making you. But I want to pray for you here as we close out this morning's message. I want to pray in line with today's message and ask specifically that you would know God's grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your weakness. Because we all have weakness. And when you fail, God is still perfect. God is still strong in the midst of your failures. And I hope that you can give yourself grace, that in the midst of your failures, because God himself gives you grace, so also you can give grace to yourself. His grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. So when your kids fall down or they start going to the wrong crowd or your husband starts to struggle in some way or he loses his job or you get ill or whatever challenge comes to your life or whatever challenge you're fighting with today, you can hold on to this reality. Perfection is the reservation of God alone. And his grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in your weakness today. Do you believe that? I'm going to pray the words of that beautiful passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and the words of Isaiah 43 over all of our moms and over all of our grandmas and over all the ladies in our church this morning. I wonder if you would just receive this from the Word of God as I pray for you. The Bible tells us this, God's grace is sufficient for me. His power is made perfect in my weakness. Ladies, would you receive that? He loves you. He's sufficient for you today. In the book of Isaiah 43 says, now says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, because you are precious in my eyes and honored. I love you, says the Lord. Father, through the fires of disappointment, we ask that these flames would not overtake us. I pray for any that are in this room today, any moms or grandmas or those who wish they were moms, who are experiencing disappointment today, I pray, God, that you let them know that those fires will not overtake them, that God is still perfect in their weakness, that God is still there with them in their time of need. And Father, some of us need to persevere through the raging waters of regret. And so for any woman in this room who is experiencing regret today, I pray that they would know God is with them. May you receive this truth today. God is with you. He forgives you. He puts his hand of mercy upon you. And his grace is sufficient for you today. Father, for all of us, I pray that this message would remind us that you remain on the throne of our lives. No behavior, no family, not even our children. You are sovereign over our lives. You are still hopelessly in love with us. You promise never to leave us or to forsake us. And so we give ourselves wholly to you. With all of the hurts, with all of the pains, with all of the great joys that come to us on Mother's Day. We surrender our hearts to you, asking for your help that you would shepherd every person in this room. We love you, Lord God. In the gracious name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Okay. No guilt message. It's a no guilt message. Wherever you are with your family, leave this room in a moment with no guilt in the one who is for you. We're going to stand up right now. We're a little bit beyond time, so we're going to stand up right now, and we're going to just leave with the final benediction. And if you need prayer here this morning, we'll have a couple prayer partners up front. But for all you moms and all you grandmas, for all you dads, for everyone in this room, I pray this benediction on you as you go today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God himself turn his face towards you and grant you peace wherever you go today. We'll see you next Sunday.